I want to talk to you guys tonight about something that I found has been pretty, pretty widespread, pretty prolific all over college campuses as I've been working with students for a long time. Um, but I want to start with a story. My dad, who was my stepdad, uh, was in the military for 30 years. And uh, I, when, he, when he married my mom, I immediately inherited a stepbrother and a stepsister. And my stepbrother is about six months older than me, so I, I went from having just one sister to like three siblings overnight. And I was very excited to have a brother. And so my brother and I would go out on these military bases and play on a normal-sized playground. Now today, playgrounds are like safe for any kid, and when they fall, they land on rubber. But when I was a kid, it was like made of wood and metal, and the ground was cement. Especially on these like Air Force bases, it was pretty rough. And so a lot of times they would sit out in the, in the heat and the cold and they get pretty banged up because stuff was made out of wood. Now one, one particular like play area that we had had a teeter-totter on it. Do you guys know what a teeter-totter is? Okay, not many, uh, I don't see many of those lately. But it was made of wood. It wasn't made of fiberglass or metal. It was made of wood and it was really jacked up, like kind of splintered and gross and a little moldy in some parts. And so my brother and I were playing on this teeter-totter and eventually because we're young boys... Which are who are stupid most of the time. Uh, we decided to entertain ourselves in some different ways, and so he would like I would sit on it, he'd jump and grab it, and the other side would come down, and then I decided to lay on the teeter totter with my face toward the center, and uh, laying like this, he jumped up, John, he grabbed it and he pulled it down, and when he did, I slid face first toward the fulcrum, and when I did, because this was an old splintered teeter totter a splinter about two inches long went right into my chest. Now, I didn't go into my heart or anything like that. It just kind of like went across the skin. And uh, I reacted similar to the way that you guys reacted. I was like, oh, what is happening? I looked down, there's some blood. And so I squeezed my chest and I ran all the way home. I was crying. And uh, when I get in the house, my mom's like, what's the problem? And I'm like, oh, and she's like, whoa, okay. So she takes me to the bathroom, lowers the, the, the toilet seat. I sit on the toilet seat like a seat, and she grabs the tweezers. And when she grabs the tweezers, I'm screaming and crying. It's painful, but she's pulling chunks of wood out of my chest, little bits at a time. It hurt way more to remove that splinter than when it went in. But I'll tell you this, even though I was a little kid, it's what was best for me. Even though I was scared and I didn't know what was going on, it was what was best for me. I trusted my mom, and I didn't doubt that what she was doing was loving and good because I knew who she was. I knew she loved me, and she cared about me. I didn't doubt that. You know, sometimes in life, when things get very, very difficult, it seems nearly impossible to trust God, doesn't it? I'll be the first to admit that. Both in the big things, like a worldwide pandemic, and the little ones, too, like the quiz that you failed. But regardless of my state of mind or attitude of heart, there is one thing that comforts me when I don't understand the confusing elements of life, because life is confusing. But here it is. No matter how great my doubt is, God is greater. It's true. But let me give you an example from the Bible. One of Jesus' disciples, appropriately nicknamed Doubting Thomas, 
once boldly said after the other disciples had told him about the resurrected Christ, he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's from John chapter 20. Never. Never? I mean, really? Never? That's a pretty audacious thing to say after you've just spent three years alongside the Messiah during his public ministry, seeing firsthand the kinds of things that Jesus could do, not to mention knowing that Jesus himself said he was going to rise from the dead after he was killed. Never. But that's what Thomas said. And of course, Jesus eventually came through for him. A little over a week later, Jesus showed up face to face, with Thomas, and the doubter's heart was convinced. Jesus then went on to say to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas's doubt was great, but God was greater. One thing I need you to know, because I've run into so many people lately who have doubted and felt ashamed of their doubt. The Lord is never repulsed by our doubt. In fact, he is actively willing to pursue us even in the midst of our questions. Sometimes in life when things get bad and doubts rise to the surface, the things that are true in life don't feel true. God's love, his grace, his sovereignty, his existence is more real than we can ever fathom, but it certainly doesn't feel that way from time to time, right? But just because God's love, for example, may not seem to be true, doesn't mean our assumptions are correct. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus is saying, blessed are you, who has not seen and yet has believed. It's encouraging to know that when I just don't get it, God is always greater. So I'm a practical guy, um, and I think it's important for me to share a few realistic things with you in order to help you get on the solution side of life when it comes to trusting God in our battle with doubt, okay? Uh, I'm very, very rational, practical, so application is often what I gravitate toward. So I'm going to walk you through four things that can act as weapons to help you trust God, to help you when you're doubting, okay? Number one, practice thankfulness. The antidote to many of my bad doubts has been an intentional movement toward dwelling on all that I'm thankful for. In a very real sense, thankfulness renews your mind and refreshes your heart in ways that make it nearly impossible to ruminate on doubt. Uh, author and pastor Paul Tripp puts this astutely in his book, Suffering. He says this, It is exactly at the point when you are tempted to think that you're not blessed that counting your blessings is most important. A thankful heart is the best defense against a doubting heart. As a defense against doubt, 
It is really important to give yourself to the quiet moments when you look at the trial, at the trail behind you of what is now around you for evidences that God is good and worthy of your trust. See, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we are incredibly forgetful when it comes to remembering the miraculous ways that God has worked in our lives. There are probably multiple examples of God's provision, his presence, and his care you personally have experienced that you could most likely recall if you simply took the time to think about them. And after you remember, rejoice intentionally. Praise God for how he's worked and watch your focus shift from dark doubt to bright thankfulness and trust. Each week on Sunday, my family pauses during the day to do what we call family devotions. Now, I have little kids, nine-year-old and seven-year-old, but when my youngest, Hayden, was four, she used to call them family demotions, which was incredible. Uh, I got demoted every week, taken down. Uh, so what do we do during family devotions? We, we read through a kid's Bible study. We ask questions. We pray. I bust out my guitar. We sing some worship songs. But my favorite part of family devotions is when we do the thankfulness jar. Uh, all four of us get a slip of colored paper and a, and a marker, and we write down the thing or things that we're thankful for that week. We add our name and the date, and uh, then we share it with one another. We go around and share it with one another. And after we all have our turn, we fold the paper in half and slip it into this mace, big mason jar with a slit on top. And uh, it's been a great way to really just intentionally dwell on the realities of God's love and work in our lives. And also, it's, it's a really fun way to see the thankfulness we share as a family build up in that jar over time. Practicing thankfulness is incredibly soothing to a life that's agitated by doubts. In thankfulness, we refocus our hearts on the giver of all good things not on our circumstances that never seem to be quite good enough for our ever-thirsty hearts. When we drink from the fountain of living water, we worship with gratitude and trust instead of agonize over our doubts. So that's number one, practice thankfulness. Number two, get with real and the right people. Get with real and the right people. It's always important to be reminded that you cannot battle your doubts with any amount of success as an isolated island. It can't be done. Despite what our individualistic culture may push, Christianity is not at all a solo thing. This is why it's so vital to plug in with a body of believers. Without the presence of other believers in your life, you stop trusting God and become susceptible to a flurry of doubts that could easily be handled if you were in healthy community. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. In other words, if you're getting input from multiple people in your life, you're going to make better decisions than you would on your own without any guidance. When you intentionally surround yourself with the right people who love the Lord, who love God, they value authenticity, and are bold enough to call you toward godly living, 
Your trust in God builds and your doubts don't linger and consume you. They can't because as the saying goes, there's safety in numbers, right? Just make sure that those numbers value their relationship with Christ more than anything else. I know in a world of earbuds and custom order everything, good community seems almost impossible this day and age, but I promise you that it's worth it to pursue, especially when you're wrestling with fully trusting God. I also know that it can feel like you're in community simply because you're surrounded by people all the time, like when you're working in your friends' groups and at the grocery store, like people are around. But real relationships require depth in a way that proximity alone won't help you grow. Likewise, don't assume that just because you're well-connected in the digital world via your phone, through text messaging, and social media, that it actually means you're living in community. Church and authentic Christian camaraderie happen in the context of face-to-face -face interaction, even if that face is covered with a mask. Uh, if we know a person solely via the veneer of their social media profiles and edited text messages, we don't know that person entirely. Sure, we can begin to understand who a person is by reading what they appreciate, uh, what kind of entertainment they enjoy, and what restaurant they want to eat at this weekend, but that is only part of the picture. We're deceiving ourselves if we buy into the fact that we can get to know someone deeply if we only communicate via memes and social media. Why? Because you were created for something much deeper than that. The real you is the real you, and you shouldn't want people to only experience the polished version of your real self. So when you doubt, do it alongside real human beings. If you genuinely plug in, others will eventually be able to see through the shine of your edited self, and that's when real change, when real help, when real hope, and when real growth happens. So let's never forget the value of getting with the right people as we struggle with trusting God. There is no good substitute for the real thing. So find your people and walk with Jesus as a group. Number three, continually remind yourself of the gospel. One of the best ways to trust the Lord and fight back against doubt is to repeatedly remind yourself of the truth. There is a hypnotizing effect that our culture can have on us because it can be relentless in its attempts to sway you toward unbelief. Uh, social media, advertising, YouTube, movies, TV, podcasts, practically everything all the time is pushing you in a direction that leads away from God. You are being, in a very real sense, discipled all the time. Whether you know it or not, you're being discipled. And consequently, if you don't spend consistent time renewing your mind with the true north-pointing good news of the gospel, 
You'll give in to culture's push and be taken downstream along with so many others who don't follow their creator. Each of us must gaze into the beauty of the gospel if we're going to have a fighting chance to live in a way that honors God and shuns unbelief. Shun. Unshun. Reshun. But what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean to gaze into the gospel? Great question. I'm glad I asked it. Well, uh, it's always a good idea to start first with regular time in God's word. Simple as that, right? The Bible. Scripture is how God Almighty chooses to communicate with us. So why would we ever treat something like that with apathy or take it for granted? Our perspective in life should be shaped by the word. Knowing that its central message Old Testament and New is all about Jesus Christ. The fact that God himself came down in the form of a human being, lived the life of perfection, was executed unjustly, and conquered death in the resurrection for you is astounding. It's the greatest thing ever in the history of everything. And even though we may have heard this message over and over and over again, we should never grow tired of how magnificent the message of the gospel is. When we truly grasp the lengths that God went to in order to rescue us from our own rebellion, it fights back and snaps those binding ropes of doubt that have tied up our hearts. The gospel is everything. And in it, we wield the most powerful of all weapons to be used against doubt. Show me a heart for getting the gospel, and I'll show you a life that is swallowed by the crushing effects of doubt. But show me a life that continually reminds itself of the truth, of who Jesus is, and who we are as a result of Jesus' work, and I'll show you a life of joy that is overwhelmed with God's goodness and love. Preach the gospel to yourself at all times. Use words. Use actions, drink deeply from the scriptures, and break free from the shackles of doubt. Fourth, and finally, this is where I get really uh, missionary. Ready? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Not only do we need to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves because we need it, we also need to engage with others about the gospel too. I am thoroughly convinced that one of the best ways to place your trust in God and counteract the attacks of doubt in your life is to proactively communicate with others about the message of the gospel. That's right. Come on now. That's right. Yep. <laughs> when we're ushered into God's family, we are given a purpose that is beyond us. This purpose involves us being proactive about communicating our faith with others who need to hear about it. Sure, it's scary. Sure, it's risky. And every single time it involves us killing the default comfort setting that seems to be so powerful in our hearts. Personally, for me, I have never in my 21 years of ministry ever been 100% comfortable when I share my faith. Never. Maybe some other people have but not me. I will tell you this, though. 
I never feel more alive than when I do. When I communicate my faith with others, I'm excited, I'm scared, I'm happy, I'm nervous, I'm warm, I'm intimidated all at once. My mouth is usually dry, my armpits are usually wet, and my heart beats way faster than it normally does. For me, it's never easy to do, but regardless of how the conversation turns out, I always seem to walk away with a renewed sense of purpose and energy. On more than one occasion, after I've communicated the gospel to someone, I have walked away and verbally said out loud, man, I feel so alive right now. Why is that? Because this is what I was made for. One such example, uh, my senior year of college, I went to an evangelism conference down in Panama City Beach to go learn how to share the gospel and then actually do it out on the beach with spring breakers who are out there partying. And so near the end of the week, um, I went across the street from the resort where we were staying to the Waffle House because that's what college students do. They love horrible food. Um, so I said it. That's right. I'm going to stand by it. Um, so I went into the Waffle House and I spotted when I did this guy who I recognized from my campus. So I walked over to him and I was like, hey, you go to Virginia Tech, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I do. I've seen you around. Yeah, what's your name? His name is Garrett. Um, and so I was like, hey, I'd love to get together with you when we get back to campus if you'd want to connect and, and have lunch or something like that. And he was like, yeah, I'd love that. So we exchanged information, found out later on during that conversation at the Waffle House, he was super stoned, like it's really high. Um, <laughs> but we got together back on campus at the best place to have any conversation, Taco Bell. Now, I will stand behind that, too. Taco Bell is awesome. So we got there, got together there, and I had the opportunity there at the Taco Bell to share the gospel with Garrett. Very receptive to it. Um, very, very intentionally listening. And I could feel like he really wanted to have a relationship with God. About two weeks later, Garrett, in the privacy of his own room, uh, asked Jesus to come into his life and forgive him of his sins. He became a Christian a few weeks later. And Garrett's life did a 180 in a way that I'd never seen before. The, the girlfriend that he was sleeping with, living with, actually, he broke up with her. He ended up going to a Bible study on campus. Uh, he ended up starting sharing his faith with, like, everybody in his friend group. And they were all partiers. They thought he was crazy. Um, he went on a summer mission the summer after his senior year. And then his plan was... After he got back from the summer mission, he was like, from this little town in West Virginia called Berkeley Springs. You guys probably have seen it before. Berkeley Springs. He was like, he knew everybody in his hometown. So he was like, I got to use that for the sake of the gospel. So he decided to put on this old school, like Billy Graham type crusade thing at his old high school. And he invited everybody in town. And he had like a super charismatic personality. So, and he was super ripped, super good looking. So like, Everybody wanted to like be around Garrett. He used that for the gospel. And he, he did it at his old high school, and he just called it Christ Night, which was like a really weird name for it. But like, And he invited me to come out, too. And when I came, I'll never forget, he got up there. He shared the gospel with hundreds of people from his hometown who were there. They all showed up. And at the end, he did this old school altar call, invited people to come up front, get on their knees, and they could pray to receive Christ right then and there. Dozens of people came up to the front. 
dozens of them, young people, old people, came to the front, and Garrett walked around and put his hands on all their heads, and he prayed for them as they prayed to receive Christ. He changed that town. He went on to go to seminary. He's now the lead pastor at Delray Baptist Church up in Northern Virginia and a board member on the Gospel Coalition. God changes lives. And he does that through evangelism. See, doubt is no match for that because sharing the gospel is what we were made for. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is not just a charge for the quote-unquote special Christians. It's a charge to anyone who follows Christ. There's no junior varsity in the kingdom of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, all of your life is not meant to be lived in the comfort of remaining silent about your faith. The discomfort that can come as a result of sharing your faith is a fantastic weapon against doubt. As we preach the gospel to others in a loving and caring way, we are reminded of God's love and care for us. Pushing doubt out of our lives and awakening worship in our hearts. Doubt is a battle worth fighting. Why? Because it's not just this battle that's at stake. It's also the battle for our future. If we aren't diligent to proactively trust the Lord and take the fight to our doubts in an intentional way, the ripple effects can be disastrous. Now, I'm speaking a little positively about doubt, but let me, let me say this. There's a difference between dealing with your doubts in a healthy way and celebrating your doubts. I am not talking about celebrating your doubts. When we have a tendency to celebrate doubts, which is very popular this day and age, to ask questions all the time but never really land on any answers, um, we become obsessed with those doubts. We become obsessed with the questions as opposed to the legitimate answers. Doubt is not meant to be celebrated. I like to think of doubt like this. Doubt is kind of like a house guest. House guests could come over to your apartment or your home. They can sleep on the couch. They can use your bathroom, put dishes in the sink. They kind of disrupt things for a little while. But at the end of the weekend, they're always meant to pack up their stuff and leave. A house guest is never meant to come over and set up a permanent tent in your living room and just camp out for a long period of time. Doubts are meant to come into our, our homes. They can mess things up for a while, but they're meant to pack up and leave. And as a result, we are the stronger for it. Just like working out a muscle, we break it down to build it up and be stronger. So let's not celebrate our doubts, but let's not be afraid of them either. Our God is a God of action. He is constantly moving and working in our lives in a way that's very much up in our business. And we are created in his image. So when it's difficult to trust him and doubts flood your heart and your mind, fight. Fight back. We shouldn't just sit around and wait for the doubts to subside on their own. Get proactive and passionate because it's about way more than just this battle. Read, study, ask questions in the context of community but know that there are answers out there. There are answers to your doubts. Your questions are not new. They have been asked for the past 2,000 years. 
and solid, great, biblical, orthodox answers to your questions exist, you just got to be willing to put in the work, do the research, and find them. You can't believe someone just because they happen to be a quote-unquote pastor on YouTube. God is good. He cares deeply about us. And even though there may be pain in the process, we can trust him because we know the lengths he went to in order to be with us. One thing you can't deny ever is that God loves you. Look to the cross. That gives our definitive answer. He died so we can live. Let me pray. Lord, help these men and women to trust you in the midst of difficult circumstances. Help them to know what it means to lean into their relationship with you. That doubts as they come along, they would disrupt things in our lives, but we would be stronger for them. That appropriately, they would move out of our lives and you would help us to grow closer to you. I pray for the women and men in here who are struggling, wrestling with doubts right now. I pray that you would help them know how near you are. And even when you seem completely absent, help them to look to the cross and know definitively, once and for all, that you love them because you died for them. We pray these things in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.